Mojave Beach Productions. Mojave Beach Productions and the Voice of Halana bring you stories of faith and inspiration, made possible by the Forgiveness Foundation International. Mojave Beach Productions and The Voice of Helona present Dear Dean, Love, Mom, made possible by the Forgiveness Foundation International and narrated by Esther Luttrell. Episode 5 Donald and I had given a workshop in Denver where we met Mike, a young policeman with dreams of becoming a screenwriter. When the weekend was over, Mike and I stayed in touch, often talking on the phone late at night when Larry was either in bed asleep or still out with a film crew. Larry was studio location manager, which meant that he was the first one on the set and the last one to leave. So it wasn't unusual for him to drag himself in at two, three, even four o'clock in the morning after 18 or more hours on a set. Mike's wife always retired early and his two small children, well, they got tucked in even before that. Anyway, one night Mike and I were exploring the possibility of co-producing a Colorado film festival. Even though several of them occur annually in cities across the state, he was determined to have one where no man had ever gone before. Cripple Creek. It's up so high in the mountains it makes your nose bleed and your knees buckle with added altitude fatigue. Well, maybe not yours, but certainly mine, as I would learn a few months later when I took on the festival's co-producing duties. Back, though, to one particular night on the phone with Mike. Deep into our exploring Cripple Creek possibilities, Mike said, Hang on a minute, I got a call coming in. Let me see who it is. A moment or two later, he was back. Well, that sure was peculiar. An operator told me I had a collect call from Dean in Rome. Well, I told her I don't know anybody in Rome. She said, will you accept the call? Well, not hardly. Isn't that the craziest thing you ever heard of? Well, it was crazy, but I'm not sure, considering recent experiences, it was the craziest I'd ever heard. We went on with our conversation for well, no more than a couple of minutes when he said, you know, that's really bugging me. I'm going to call the operator and see if I can get a little more information on that call from Rome. Let me call you right back. Ten minutes later, he was on the line again. I checked with the phone company, and you'll never believe what they told me. They said that no international calls have been placed to my number. In fact, no calls at all have come into my number this entire evening. Well, now, wait a minute. The operator had said to Mike that he had a collect call from Dean in Rome. She'd ask if he would accept the charges. Now the phone company was saying that no international calls had been placed to Mike's number. Well, I refused to associate my dean 
with every strange thing that happens on the planet, especially since his death. But I have read that spirits, well, they often use the phone and other electronic means to communicate. Was there a connection? Dean would have loved the idea of me producing a film festival. Was he trying to say, yeah, Mom, that's a good idea, go for it? You know, some things have no answers. One question only leads to more questions. Before tackling the Cripple Creek Film Festival, Donald and I were invited to give a workshop in Colorado Springs. On each of the days we were there, I noticed a tall, dignified gentleman standing at the back of the room. He had a military bearing. If I were to pull him out of central casting, I'd say he could play the role of a retired general. He didn't participate in the workshop, but simply stood back by the coffee bar all day Saturday and all day Sunday, observing and watching me with a quiet intensity. On the last day, as Donald gave his closing remarks and I prepared to gather my belongings before heading to the airport, the tall gentleman walked up to me. He introduced himself. <laughs> he was indeed a retired military man, and he pressed a sheet of paper into my hand. I want you to read this, he said, watching me with kindly eyes, but not until you're on the plane. With that, he smiled, patted my shoulder, and walked away. Once on the plane, I unfolded what turned out to be an eight and a half by 11 inch photocopy of an article about the youngest commercial captain in airline history, the gentleman's daughter, and she had recently died. I knew the moment I saw the picture of her that accompanied the article, she was the kind of girl Dean was always attracted to, petite, blonde, sweet-faced, a young Olivia Newton-John, his favorite actress. I looked for other clues in the article that would tell me of Dean's connection to the man and his daughter, for surely there was one. She was approximately Dean's age when he died, but beyond that I wasn't sure. However, as I read the article, I kept seeing Dean in my mind, and I felt certain they hadn't known each other in life, even though he too had worked for an airline. He was an attendant for United, and she'd been a captain with TWA. Still, I felt a connection between the two of them, though I sensed it was on the other side, not this side. I knew you should see this, her father had said when pressing the article into my hand. I can't explain it, but I knew it. Why was he compelled to share the article with me? Why had he observed me for two full days before parting with the write-up? Why was it important I not read it until I was on the plane? Was it simply another case of a parent or sibling having lost a loved one and somehow finding me and sharing the information? Or was Dean and the young airline captain trying to tell me that they had orchestrated the way in which their parents would come together so that we would know that they were alive and well and with us still? If that's the case, then I missed it entirely. I read the article trying to figure out how I could make a screenplay of it. Nineteen eighty-four, hmm, a lifetime ago. I was working at my chips desk on the MGM studio lot. Dean was a college filmmaker still living at with us in the Seal Beach house. On a particular day, he was driving along a boulevard, he told me, when a car stopped in front of him. 
The driver's door opened and a man set a terrified puppy down in the middle of the street. Then he pulled away, leaving the little dog standing there trembling. Dean said he jumped out, put the baby lab in his car, then parked and walked up and down several streets, knocking on doors, asking if the dog belonged to them or, or anybody they knew. He figured that some punk had snatched the pooch from its yard and made off with it as a sick prank. No one claimed to have ever seen the pup before, nor did they know anything about it. Dean couldn't abandon the poor thing, so he brought her home. Now, Larry had just gotten me a Valentine's Day gift, a border collie. With everyone gone for long hours during the day, it was, it was too difficult to have more than one animal to care for. I told Dean on the phone that he'd have to get rid of her, though neither of us would take any animal to a shelter where their fate was practically sealed. When I got home, I saw one of the ugliest things I've ever witnessed on four furry feet. She was about nine or ten weeks old, scrawny, with the beady eyes of a bear, solid black and slick. There was nothing cute or cuddly about the critter, dog lover that I am. Granted, though, we couldn't just set her outside and shut the door. What to do, what to do? We named her Bear for obvious reasons, which was a mistake. Never name anything you don't intend to keep. When any of us went up to the second floor, Bear would struggle one paw at a time, heisting herself up that flight of steps until she reached the landing. Then she'd stand there, wagging her tail nearly giddy with accomplishment. Oddly enough, Bear wouldn't go down the stairs, though. She would stand at the top of the landing, whining and yelping until one of us would pick her up and carry her down with us. A real pain in the patuka. I could see that Dean was totally smitten with the mutt, but not me. Uh-uh, I was hanging tough. Maybe a, oh, a week later or so, I was upstairs when I finished what I was doing and, and I started back down to the first floor. A bear watched me go, whining, wanting to be picked up and taken along. I sighed a long, disgusted sigh before tromping back up to fetch her. She waited expectantly and eager-eyed. Nope, I said finally. You're going to have to learn to do it yourself or you stay up here. As if understanding my every word the moment I put my foot on the first step, she put hers there as well. Then she, very cautiously, stretched out to put her back feet on the top step. So far, so good. She tentatively stuck out one front paw, placed it on the second step, followed it by the other front paw. <laughs> That's when she looked up at me as if to ask how she was doing, and I nodded my encouragement. She turned back to continue her journey when her feet slipped out from under her. All four legs went spread eagle out to the side. She went thunking down those every single step, thunk, 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 thunk on her chin with her rear end straight up in the air. Well, I shrieked and hurried after her, but before I could get to her, she landed in a heap at the foot of the steps. She pulled her little self together, shook her head as if to clear it, looked up at me, and wagged her tail gleefully. She had made it. <laughs> Oh, needless to say, from that moment on, Bear was our baby, our darling. The smartest dog I've ever known, the most precious, caring animal anybody could imagine. I swear she was half human. If I said, gee, you're looking a little shabby, think it's time to clean up a bit, 
She'd hightail it upstairs and be sitting in the tub before I could even get to the bathroom. And she went with us. She went with us everywhere except to work. She was really a treasured member of the family. Valley, my Valentine border collie, was a classic beauty, sweet-natured and wonderful, but he was a, a dog. Bear only looked like a dog. By the time she turned two, she had become a real beauty. She ended up having a gorgeous litter of pups, one of which I gave to my Aunt Betty in Yucca Valley, and she named him Rocky. Dean really adored Bear. When Dean died, Bear seemed to know. She looked as sorrowful as the rest of us. Two years later, Bear developed a serious ailment and had to be put down, and my heart broke. The old scabs from my grief over Dean pulled away and bled anew. The day after her death, Aunt Betty called to tell me that she'd had a most unusual experience the night before. She'd been asleep for some time when she was awakened by the sound of metal rattling. It was a light sound, not, not clanking chains, but the faint sound of something light and metallic rustling in the stillness. The second time she heard it, she sat up and looked around the room. She looked across to the door that led to the front porch. It was dark, but from an outside security light, she could distinguish a man's figure in the doorway. Then she realized it was Dean. He was holding a leash with Bear on the end of it. Bear strained toward the little bed where Rocky was sleeping under a table. Dean let her go and Bear took another step closer. Satisfied after a couple of nuzzles, she turned back to Dean. The leash made another slightly metallic rattling sound as Dean gave it a small tug. Dean, Betty said, surprised, why aren't you at your mom's? She later told me she had no idea why she had, hadn't just simply greeted him with, hello, honey. He didn't answer, but smiled a bit. Then he and Bear vanished. Isn't that strange, Betty said to me on the phone after telling the story. And what I really don't understand is why Bear would be here, too. Do you have any idea what time it happened, Betty? Well, it was around midnight. I didn't get back to sleep, though, until almost dawn. I just can't figure it out. Bear died last night, I told her, a little after midnight. Then we both understood. Bear had gone to check on her baby before leaving for the other side with Dean. When you're telling about one aspect of your life, it sometimes sounds as if that aspect is the total of your existence rather than a portion of it. And so it is when I talk about the spirit world. The only thing of that nature that I was aware of around the time of Dean's death was the news that my grandfather had died before I was born and therefore could not have been in my grandma Delamater's house except in spirit. And of course, Dean's encounter with nine-year-old John at my mother-in-law's house. But that was Dean's experience. I'm talking about my own personal encounters. Sure, I'd had incidents happen over the years that gave me pause that others might have thought odd, but except for my grandpa, I never had any direct contact with the other side until Dean's death. And I wonder if once we open up to the reality of spirits and to life on the other side, we aren't suddenly more sensitive to other kinds of phenomena as well. I've come to the conclusion that it's all related. 
as our experiences broaden, it's as if we've passed some sort of test and we're allowed to know more, having proven that we have evolved to a place where we can take in more. Maybe we're given only that which we are ready to experience as we become equipped emotionally, mentally, and spiritually to experience it. Soon after Bear died, I was offered a job in Florida hosting a national television talk show. It sure wasn't anything I aspired for. I figured Oprah had that pretty, <laughs> had pace pretty well covered, and I really wasn't eager to make a fool of myself trying to compete. Still, it was a tempting challenge, and I was finally talked into it. Larry was working on a television series, The Magnificent Seven. Filming was done mostly at the old Gene Autry Ranch, about a two-hour drive from our house. We decided that uh, since the proposed talk show was new and therefore a gamble, it would be wise for Larry to keep his job, at least for the time being. I'd go on down to Florida, make the pilot, see how it went, and we could plan our next move based on that. We decided to let our house go and rent an apartment for Larry closer to his work. However, the more we thought about it, the more Larry felt he wanted to go to Florida with me. Although I was born in Daytona Beach, lo, those many years ago, and the majority of my family members had lived all over the state, most of them had eventually scattered to other locations or had died, with the exception of my mother and stepdad who had maintained residence in Palatka for over 30 years. The passing of time had not brought my mom and me any closer than we had been when I was a child. She was content to live her life, with birthday and Christmas gifts our only real connection. She could not have called her grandchildren by name if you'd ask her. She wasn't cruel. She simply wasn't interested, and I never faulted her for it. If there's one thing I've come to realize over the years, it's that most heartache is the result of expectation. We expect people to act a certain way or to say or do a certain things, and when they don't, we're devastated or angry or hurt. Looking at it objectively, I realize that we have a certain script in our mind, and when those around us don't say or do things according to our notion of how it should be, we react. I've come to accept that I have no right to expect anyone to act any certain way. They haven't seen my script. They don't know the lines and actions we expect of them. They are who they are. We can accept who they are, or we can reject who they are, but we can expect them to be otherwise. And so I came to accept that my mother and I would never be close, no matter how much I wanted it to happen. On the other hand, Larry still felt emotionally tied to his home state. His mother, Reva, was getting up in years, and he wanted to be close in case she needed him. So at the last moment, the decision was made for both of us to pick up and take off Florida bound. One night, a week or so before we were scheduled to leave, I sat in the middle of our king-size bed, pondering the question of where we would live. It was such a huge move, and our plans were so vague. Larry was still out on the set at the Autry Ranch, and I was home alone. As I sat there in the center of the bed, I said to God, Lord, I know you're not into real estate, but may I tell you what I'd like if we're to make this kind of change in our life? I would like a big house 
so that we can entertain Larry's family and all the friends he hasn't seen in so many years. A place where I can have an office, maybe a separate building on the grounds. I'd like five acres, if you don't mind. I was warming to the subject as images flooded in my mind. May I also have a library? A real one with Walter wall shelves for books? I'd also like a separate dining room where we can seat at least ten for dinner. Oh, and could I have five bedrooms so we'll have plenty of room for company? I'd also like to ask you for a pool. You know I don't swim, and I don't care about one for myself. But Florida's so hot, and, and it would be good to have one for company to enjoy. I'd love a porch, too. That would be nice. Please let me know it's the right house when I see a tiny room that I can use for a chapel. If it could be off the master bedroom, that would be even better. Thank you, God. I slept well that night, knowing that the matter was in better hands than mine. I look at that paragraph and I don't know whether to delete it or to go ahead and expose myself as the materialistic airhead I sound like. First off, I have a problem with people confusing God with Santa Claus. It seems to me that most prayers are requests for things. I contend that there's only one true prayer, and that's a prayer of thanksgiving. Even if we don't have all we want or think we need, we have so much. If we have nothing but our mind, we have so much. If we have friends, we're ahead of the game. If we have our mind, a friend or two, and a couple of dollars in our pocket, we're more than blessed. God knows what we need better than we know our needs. He knows what we want even before we realize we want it. We don't have to petition Him. We don't have to plea and bargain with Him. So, why did I ask for a house? I don't know. Maybe it was to define to myself what it was I was looking for. Maybe it was to let God know that I wanted His blessing. And even as I write that, I realize I'm leaving the impression of God as a man on a throne giving out favors to His well-behaved kids, which I don't believe for one moment. However you see God, whatever your definition of God, I personally would like it if I could remember to turn every aspect of my life over to Him. That doesn't mean that I'll ask for something then sit back expecting my request to be filled with no effort on my part. I like the adage, work as if everything depends on you, pray as if everything depends on God. Maybe it's as simple as putting the secret of the secret to work. Though, of course, in the late 90s, I had not yet heard of the book by that name or of the documentary yet to come. The next day, after my real estate prayer, I sat down at my hated, much appreciated computer. I have an iffy relationship with the contraption. I really would love to love it, but it treats me unkindly. I don't understand the thing. The Internet's a complete mystery to me, one I'm not even remotely interested in solving. However, the only way to locate an out-of-state rental that I knew of was to go on the blasted thing and do a search for a house. How'd I do it? <laughs> you tell me and we'll both know. I couldn't do it again if my life depended on it. In one of my trips to Florida, I've given about a dozen or so workshops across that state, I ran across Mount Dora. It's a small town, 40 minutes or so southwest of Orlando. Too expensive, I was told when I inquired about the possibility of living there. It's an artsy community, too upscale for you and Larry, they continued. Well, not to be put off, since I'm not sure where people thought Larry and I rightly belonged, I decided to check out Mount Dora Possibilities anyway. A pretty little place built around a large lake. It has brick streets charming shops and pristine houses that remind me of Concord, Massachusetts.
Somehow, don't ask me how, but somehow I landed on a Mount Door rental site on the internet, and there was only one listing. I made the inquiry and found myself corresponding via email with the owner. He was not only genial, he seemed genuinely delighted to find folks who might be interested in their modest dwelling. In fact, the day we were planning to arrive was the day before he and his wife planned to drive to California to look for their dream house. We could lease the place while they were gone, he said. According to my calculations and Larry's, by the time they returned, we would have completed the television talk show pilot and be ready for our next step, whatever that might be. If the couple found a place they wanted to buy in California, they would move, and we could possibly take over their house, as the owner suggested. If they didn't find a place, no problem. We'd either go on down to Miami if the pilot wasn't successful, or we could rent somewhere in the vicinity of Daytona, the origin of the television show, if the show was picked up. We arrived in Mount Dora just before sunset, towing a U-Haul trailer behind us. The drive through lush, green countryside, dotted with orange groves and cloud-sweeping palms, four or five miles uh, beyond Mount Dora proper, was really spectacular. Finally, we pulled up in front of an estate in the center of five lovely acres. A plaque on a brick pillar proclaimed Oak Arbor. Larry pushed the button on an outdoor intercom. A man's voice asked him to identify himself. When he did, the wrought iron gate magically parted and we drove through like Moses forging the Red Sea. The half-circle crushed shell drive fronted a 4,000-square-foot home made of white wood with black shuttered windows. An ivy-covered arbor led us to a front door where three chimes beckoned an elderly gentleman to let us in. I've been in lovely homes before, but this one was beyond my wildest and sweetest fantasy. It was sprawling and tropical and unpretentious. Comfortable and airy, it was built on an L around a swimming pool, and it also had a library with a secret panel that, when pressed, moved an entire bookcase revealing a hidden room. It had a separate dining room that could seat ten, a cottage beside the main house that the owner used as his studio, he was an architectural engineer, and two porches. Off the master bedroom was a niche that had been intended as a sauna, but had never been completed. It was made of bottled glass and ceramic tile, with an alcove that would hold a large candle perfectly, the chapel I had prayed for. Larry and I were stunned to have literally stumbled into such an unbelievable situation. The elderly couple asked to take us to dinner. They wanted to get to know us a bit before leaving us with all of their worldly possessions, which included an expensive Persian rug and a baby grand piano. They were leaving for California at dawn the next day. When I asked to use the restroom, I was directed to a bath in one of the four guest rooms. Now, Dean was colorblind. He loved to paint, but sometimes his work was a bit more imaginative than he meant it to be. Take, for instance, the little unicorn he once made for me. Despite the fact it had green horns and red eyes, he couldn't distinguish reds and greens. I loved it. So imagine my surprise when I saw, on a glass shelf in one of the guest bathrooms, an identical unicorn with green horns and red eyes. I grabbed it up and took it with me to the living room where... 
we had when we had a moment alone i showed it to larry he gave me a quizzical look why'd you bring that he asked thinking i had brought it with me from our california house i didn't i said and told him where i had found it he suppressed a grin ah, i think we're in our right place don't you the next morning after the couple had taken off i was exploring the house looking for a trash can i ventured into the utility room and found what i'd been searching for Lifting the cover, I saw only one item in the huge container, a plastic lid with the word Dean printed on it. It turns out that's a brand of ice cream favored by the couple and sold in southern stores, but I'd never seen the product before. The house, exactly as I described it to God, the greenhorn, red-eyed unicorn, exactly like the one Dean had painted for me so many years before, and now a solitary item in the trash can, a lid with my boy's name on it. Was there perhaps an angel on my shoulder? You've been listening to Dear Dean, Love, Mom, told by its author Esther Luttrell and brought to you by The Voice of Helona in association with Mojave Beach Productions. The Voice of Halona theme was composed and performed by David Randa of Feslian Studios. Patrick McGrenahan produced. This production was recorded by Dean Fairweather. Funding for Dear Dean, Love Mom was made possible by the Forgiveness Foundation International, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the support of all aspects of forgiveness in families, communities, businesses, and personal relationships. Visit their website at ForgivenessFoundationInternational.com. This is Jeff Evans, inviting you to soar on the wings of imagination to Mojave Beach Productions' World of Audio Entertainment. Mojave Beach Productions. I just want to take a moment to thank you for soaring with us on the wings of imagination as you listen to stories we're having so much fun creating for you. If you enjoy what you hear, take a moment to subscribe to Mojave Beach Productions on your favorite podcast app. And thanks a million.